Let's take our Bibles and turn to the last part of the New Testament, the book of Philemon. We're going to spend this week and the next in this book. This is one of only five books in the Bible that's just one chapter. It'd be interesting to take a quiz and see if we know the other four. I'll go ahead and give them to you. It's Obadiah, 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude, and the book of Philemon. Now, just because it's short doesn't mean there's not a lot of truth, and Philemon is really one of Paul's most personal letters. Um, it's one that he writes directly to a person uh, to speak to them and to encourage them. Uh, we know most of Paul's books, most of his letters are written to churches. Uh, they're dealing with theological and practical issues and, and teaching and training and developing and encouraging. We know that a couple of his books, First and Second Timothy, were very personal letters written to a young pastor as he was thinking about quitting and, and really uh, struggling. Uh, so that's kind of a, an appeal for him to continue on. But the book of Philemon addresses a personal issue that doesn't really uh, deal with church, doesn't really deal with theology, uh, doesn't really deal with, with uh, practical Christian living, uh, although next week we'll touch on a little bit. But this is really just a personal appeal about an issue that Paul uh, was addressing with Philemon that Paul was asking for a favor. He was saying, I need you to do something for me, um, not only as a friend, and as a favor to me, but to honor the Lord. Now, we'll focus more on that next week and what that was about and why he was doing that. But let me kind of give you a little bit of background if you're not as familiar with this book um, and kind of sum it up in a few sentences. Uh, Paul had met a, uh, excuse me, Philemon had a, a bondservant named Onesimus. And Onesimus um, served Philemon, but at some point he had run away. He had abandoned his master and, and gone on the lamb. And we know from our studies in Scripture that a bondservant was a servant who willingly served the master. Under the law, after seven years, a servant uh, had to be given the opportunity to be free. But a bondservant was a servant that said, because I love my master, because I love um, being in this role, and because I'm dedicated to this, I want to stay on for the rest of my life. And they would take the servant and they would put him up against the door and hold out his earlobe and put an awl and, and put a hole in his ear. And that would signify that that servant had chosen to willingly live for the master uh, and willingly take that role. Now, uh, Christianity was a little bit different because under Roman law, a bondservant had no rights. They, they really had nothing. They could be killed by their owners with impunity. There, were, there was nothing they had um, that give them, gave them any hope. But under Mosaic law, there was this opportunity for the servant to kind of um, take this responsibility because they loved the master and because the master had treated them well. And, and this voluntary pledge signaled an issue of the heart. It signaled an issue of, of being willing to sacrifice and surrender to the will of the master. Now, we obviously um, get the, the spiritual implication of that. We get the understanding after being at the communion table that um, we are called in Scripture bond servants. All throughout the New Testament, Paul and Jude and Timothy uh, and, and others refer to themselves this way because 
Um, we as believers who have had the master um, show mercy and show love and grace to us have been freed and yet we have willingly said, I surrender to you, Lord. I give my life to you. I'm your servant. God doesn't treat us like servants, right? He treats us like children. But, but we willingly take this role. So all throughout Scripture, you see that we are called bondservants. And that really should be the mindset that we have. Um, Paul, you notice in verse 1, calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And we're going to read that in a minute. He was a literal prisoner at this point. He was in jail. Um, he was actually under house arrest in Rome. First time he was under arrest in Rome. But he calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And that's not just uh, the literal meaning because in other passages he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Every book he opens, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But here in Philemon, it's Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And that's not because he's in jail because in other books he's in jail. There's a deeper spiritual meaning that Paul is going for here. So let's look at this because the purpose of Paul writing is to appeal to his friend uh, Philemon to forgive Onesimus for running away, to take him back because Paul somehow met Onesimus in Rome. Paul ministered to him, led him to Christ, and then Onesimus ministered to Paul, and then Paul said, you got to go back. Under the law, under Roman law, I need to send you back. So he sends Onesimus back, and he says to Philemon, I need you to show mercy. Look at what he says in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. I thank my God always, always making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Now again, Paul's in jail. Paul's writing as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Again, not just the literal sense, but the spiritual sense. This is an intentional designation. It's an intentional statement that he makes in verse 1. Not only because of the subject of the letter and because what he's going to appeal to Philemon about, but, he, but because he wants him to understand and he wants us to understand uh, 1,900 years later that once we were captive to sin and now we've been freed. That once we were under bondage, but Christ has come and he has freed us, and now we are bondservants. Now we have willingly surrendered ourselves, joyfully surrendered ourselves to the master because he loves us, because he showed mercy on us, and we now serve him. We now live for him. We now do his will because of what he's done for us. So Paul is alluding to that, not so subtly. He's saying, you and I, Philemon, we are bondservants of Jesus Christ. We have been given to the Lord, and, and we have willingly chosen to continue to serve him. Now Jesus told us in Matthew 6 and in Matthew 16 that as bondservants, we are to renounce all other masters. We're to give ourselves completely to him. And Ephesians 6 says the bondservant does the will of God with all their heart. 
because we've been set free. Now, it's with that understanding, if you look back at verses 1 and 2, that, that Paul addresses the other people here. Because there are three people he's writing to. Philemon, Aphia, who may be Philemon's wife, we're not sure. And then a man named Archippus. And Archippus was a minister. He was a pastor. So Paul is writing to these people. And he is saying that, that um, I'm writing as your fellow laborer. Now, if there's anybody that could have had an attitude, if there's anybody could have rested on their laurels and said, look at me, look at what I've accomplished in ministry. I have authority. I've been called directly by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. I've been made the minister to the Gentiles. I, I have education. I have experience. I have respect. I've set up churches. If, if anybody could say that, it would be Paul. If anybody's ego could have been stoked to say, listen, I, I'm writing to you with, with full authority. You need to do what I say. Uh, I, I, I am really over you. I'm a senior uh, minister. I'm a senior authority in terms of this. And Philemon, you need to do what I say. If anybody could have done that, it would have been Paul. And here's the danger of, of anyone in full-time ministry is that when we feel the authority of teaching and directing and shepherding, and when there's attention of a congregation, it tends to stoke ego. It tends to elicit pride to the extent that it's easy in ministry, whether you're in pastoral ministry or worship ministry or a missionary or some kind of teacher, it is, it is very easy for the temptation to come in to feel special and to feel privileged. Having worked in two mega churches and one which was aspiring to be that, I can tell you that there is great danger, great danger for men and women who are leading ministries. And many of them fall into temptation to see themselves as unique and as powerful and as the reason for the success of the ministry. You usually know this is happening when the pastor or leader develops their own website with their own name and no longer starts promoting the church. Now, this is, a, this is a danger, and the reason I mention that is because that leads to a person being above accountability. That leads to the person starting to say, well, I'm the reason, I'm the one who's leading, everybody needs to pay attention to me and listen to me. And we've seen many examples of this, including one very recently that was very prominent of, of people failing morally because their ego was not in check, there was no accountability around them, and, and they fell. And unfortunately, I'm not a prophet, but it's going to happen again. And it's going to happen with very prominent people. But let me tell you, it's not limited to mega church pastors. Medium-sized church pastors, small church pastors can see themselves in exactly the same way. Indispensable, I'm above it all, you need to do what I say, I'm the authority, I've studied more than you. I'm telling you this because I've worked in all different kinds of churches and this has never stopped being a temptation for myself or for other people around me. Now, if anybody, come back to it, come back to verse 1. If anybody could have copped that attitude about their success, it was the Apostle Paul. If anybody could have said, listen to me, I'm the authority, you do what I say, it was Paul. But I want you to notice how he describes himself and how he describes these other servants. He calls himself a prisoner of Christ. 
He calls Timothy, who was a young, insecure evangelist, he calls him his brother. He calls Philemon, who was kind of an ordinary pastor, his dearly beloved fellow laborer. He says Aphia is a sister in the Lord, and he calls Archippus, who was a minister in Colossae, he says, you're a fellow soldier. Not only is Paul presenting himself humbly, which he was, but he's seeing himself as Jesus' bondservant, and he says, because I'm a bondservant, and because you're a bondservant, anybody who serves in the Lord, we are equal. We share the calling of serving the Lord together. Just because I'm standing on a platform this morning teaching the Word of God, or just because the worship team was up here uh, leading us in worship, doesn't mean that we're any more special than somebody who's teaching second grade right now. Or somebody who ushered, or somebody who helped serve communion, somebody who's running tech, or somebody who stood out in the rain and greeted people as they were coming in. All of us are fellow laborers. All of us are co-workers in Christ. And as bond servants, nobody who's a bond servant says, well, look at me, I'm a bond servant. A bond servant is a low place. And when we maintain that attitude like Paul does, that's where our heart will become right. So let me give a couple truths this morning, a couple principles to deal with. And, and that's, this is our first principle. This is our first important truth, that Jesus' disciples are fellow laborers. We as believers are fellow laborers, and our work is serious and it's challenging. Look at the two words, the two terms that Paul uses here. He says, we're fellow workers, verse 1, and we're fellow soldiers, verse 2. Now the first term is the Greek word, fellow worker. It's the Greek word, sunergos. It means to work together. Now it's where we get the word synergy. I looked up synergy last night because I couldn't remember exactly what it means. Synergy means to cooperate in the effort so the result is better than if we worked alone. So we're fellow workers. You and I are fellow workers in Christ. We're sunergus. We, we work together, and when we work together and we do what we're supposed to do, the result would be better than if we worked alone. So there's a, a spiritual and practical effectiveness here. Everybody that's serving this morning, the people that came up yesterday and set up Harbor Cafe and prepared and decorated for that, the people that, that made sure that the bulletins were all folded and that the, and that the uh, things for the graduates, that they were all um, folded and nicely tucked in. The musicians who came up this week and practiced beforehand. Uh, everybody that, that worked this morning, people that are changing diapers right now, they'd rather be in here than changing a diaper. Anybody would rather be doing anything but changing a diaper, right? But they're doing it. Amen. They're serving the Lord. Nobody sees it. You won't know other than the fact that you'll get your baby back and their diaper will be clean. You won't know all that went into that. The time they were crying, the time they had to be rocked, the time they sang to them. That, that's effort. That's fellow workers. Somebody sees my face up here, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that we're all laboring together, using our gifts to honor Jesus Christ. So we're fellow workers. Second, would you see in verse 2 that we're fellow soldiers? Now what does that tell us? That tells us that this is often challenging work. And we have to take a stand together in defense of the gospel. The, the example I, I, I always go to with this is in Nehemiah. When they were building the wall, 
and well, I think we may do a study in Nehemiah soon, but they were building the wall, and, and there was a threat. There was opposition. There were people that were being critical and trying to discourage and trying to eventually stop the whole project. And Nehemiah says to the people, in one hand, hold your tool, and in another hand, hold a weapon. Offense and defense. Because there's always going to be opposition. How many know there's always opposition? Every single day, there's opposition. This morning, as I was sitting in my office, reading and studying and praying, there was opposition, strong opposition. Felt it. I said to the Lord, why this morning am I dealing with this? And I thought, well, of course, it's because we're praising you this morning. We're celebrating your table. We're singing about your goodness. We're studying your word. We're praying. Of course, there's going to be opposition. Tomorrow morning, guess what? Warfare. Tuesday, guess what? More warfare. Wednesday, you know what's coming, right? More warfare. So we have to be fellow soldiers. We're laborers and we're soldiers. We stand guard. We strengthen each other in the work of ministry. We serve on the front line of battle. And 2 Timothy, Paul says, be careful because this is your role, not to entangle yourself in the things of life because your heart and your mind need to be ready. Soldier can't go into battle with headphones on, rocking out, paying attention to something else while the bullets are flying. Nope, they've got to be fully engaged and fully energized. Now Paul, look back at it for a minute. Paul correctly sees them as fellow ministers, fellow soldiers. And he says, I praise the Lord for the church in your house. There was a house church in Colossae. Paul hadn't visited Colossae yet. But notice, as he talks about it, he doesn't talk about their clever tactics and how they were drawing people in and their Bible studies and their programs and their kids' ministry and their social media strategy and their incredible worship and their lights and their smoke and all that kind of stuff. Not, not that any of those things is inherently wrong, but that is not what should be our emphasis and our preoccupation. Churches always have to come back to the purity of what is most effective in drawing people to Christ. And Paul talks about it. Look at it, verse 5. Because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and all the saints. Truth number two. Truth number one was Jesus' disciples or fellow laborers, our work is serious and challenging. Truth number two is, we should always be distinguished for our love and our faith. We should always be distinguished for our love and our faith. Now, Paul specifically mentions that Philemon and Aphia and Archippus are known, they're known for their love and their faith. For the Lord and for each other. And I thought to myself as I studied that, what a description to strive for. That those two traits would be unquestioned in our lives because we're loving the Lord sacrificially and because we're trusting him completely. Now, the, the love here is not romantic love. It's not sexual love. It's not brotherly love. The word here is agape. You've heard that many times before. The meaning of agape is faithfulness, commitment, and willingness. So we are to love with faithfulness, commitment, and willingness to the Lord and to each other. And then the word for faith means deep conviction, faithfulness, and passion. 
Now, both of those words, love and faith, contain the concept of being faithful, which means this isn't temporary. It's not Sunday morning. It's not Wednesday afternoon. It's not circumstantial. When things are going right, I'll love the Lord and I'll, and I'll trust the Lord. But when things aren't going well, you know what? It's going to waver. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go back and forth a little bit because life is difficult right now. It's not manipulative. Well, I love the Lord, so I'll get stuff from him. I'll trust the Lord, so he'll do and bless me and give me stuff because that's what it's all about. No, it's, it's none of those things. This is a constant, complete conviction, commitment, and fire for the Lord. You're known, Philemon, you're known for your love, for your faith. Everybody talks about it. Paul was 1,200 miles away. He says, I've heard all about it. He had never been to Colossae at this point. He says, without technology, without social media, I've heard, word on the street is that, that, that you guys are known for your love and your faith. Now, as I studied that, I said to myself, what words describe me? When people mention my name, when, when my name comes up in conversation, what are the two words that come to people's minds? I want you to really sit with that thought for a second because this is not only how we're viewed fairly and unfairly. When, when, when you say my name or when I say your name, what are the, what are the two words? Now, now, that may not be fair. It, it may be biased, but it doesn't really matter because that's people's impression. And in many ways, I think we would find that that is a true picture into our character. Now, for these three, look back at verse 5. This is the DNA of their daily lives. This is who they are. Not only did they have love and faith for the Lord, but they had love and faith toward others. And there's really no question that that should be the default description for you and I, for every church that loves Jesus Christ and loves his word and is doing his great commission. As a body, we should be known, we should be known for genuine, sacrificial, gracious love for each other. Anybody that walks in this building for the first time, and maybe you're here for the first time today, I hope and pray that you have felt love, that you have felt acceptance, that you've felt worthy, um, that, that there hasn't been any attitude or pride or, or, or segregation of any measure. I hope that you have felt that, that we genuinely care about you. And if not, then we have work to do. And we should be known at the same time for our biblical theology, for conviction, for taking a stand for the Lord, for representing Jesus Christ, and for doing what's right without compromise. So you can't have one or the other. It has to be both. There has to be love, sacrifice, mercy, grace, uh, a genuine care for each other, uh, edifying, building each other up. Uh, supporting one another, praying for one another. That has to be all there. But if it's only love and no conviction, then you're weak. If it's only conviction, teaching strong biblical word, here's what God says and this is what we must do, and there's no love to it, then it's legalism. We have to have both at the same time in equal parts. And if we don't have either of them, it really doesn't matter 
how awesome the worship is or how great the program's in or how deep the preaching is or how beautiful the building is because we will just be shallow and insincere. And I am still convinced that being marked by love and faith under the power and leading of the Holy Spirit is the only church growth method with any integrity. I'm convinced of that. I will not change my mind on that. Now notice that Paul says, Philemon, you're known for these traits. And I thank the Lord for it, verse 4, and I pray, verse 6, that it will continue to increase in your life and ministry. And that's a good reminder to us because we need to be asking the Lord every day, Lord, I need greater love. I need greater love for you. I need greater love for other people. Lord, I need greater faith. I need stronger faith. I need a more effective personal ministry. And the only way that's really going to be integrous and strong is to have greater love and greater faith. And then we need to pray that for each other too. Anytime you think of somebody's name this week, I don't care who it is, ask the Lord to work. Just just start praying. You think of so-and-so, you think of one of those students that was up here, you think of somebody that, that helped your kids this morning, you think of a friend, you think of a neighbor, just pray for them. If they're a believer, Lord, give that person greater love this week. Give that person greater faith this week. Oh, Lord, help them, minister to them, support them, strengthen them, encourage them right now, Lord, I pray. As I'm praying for myself, I pray for them. Minister to my fellow worker. Minister to my fellow soldier. I'm telling you, you start doing that during the week, your prayer life will change. Your burden for people, your heart for people. Then you see that person Sunday, and you can legitimately say, I prayed for you this week. I thought, you came to my mind Tuesday, 3 o'clock, I prayed for you. I guarantee you that person will say, you know what? I know you did. Because something happened at 3.30, and I felt that support. When you think of somebody this week, pray for them. Ask the Lord to work and to make their influence conspicuous and effective. Then notice in verse eight, uh, verse six, excuse me, that Paul says that our love and faith, how does that grow how, beyond, beyond asking the Lord to do it? How do we continue to grow in our love and faith? He says it's through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. What does that mean? What's, what's the Spirit calling us to here? Well, he's saying constantly gain a deeper understanding and appreciation of every good thing that's in us through Christ. How wonderful God has been. How reassuring his presence is. His grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his cleansing. The presence of the Spirit who teaches us and leads us and protects us. The new nature, the renewed mind that we've been given in Christ. God's mercy, God's patience, God's long-suffering, his, his kindness the fruit that we've been given, the spiritual fruit that's growing in us, the spiritual gifts we've been given, the, the, the presence, uh, the time in his presence that he loves. He holds our prayers in bowls. He loves it when we come. When we worship, he stands in the middle of the worship, the Bible says. He, he stands right in the center. The word that we hold in our hands. All these things that we've been given Verse 6 says we need to gain a deeper understanding of them, a deeper appreciation of them, because through the knowledge of every good thing that is ours in Christ, we then grow in faith and in love. And then notice one last truth. 
before Paul gets down to next week, what we'll study, what he's going to ask Philemon, he wants him to affirm him for one more thing. Look back at verse 7. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. This is the third truth that we're called to. We must continually be a source of refreshing. I'm glad it's raining this morning, even though I am so sick of rain. I'm so sick of this weather. I'm, anybody else tired of it? I'm sick of it. But I'm glad it's raining this morning because it emphasizes verse 7. Paul says, as the Lord has poured out mercy and grace onto your life, as he's poured out your, his spirit onto your life, and that's implied, that's not in the text, but it's true. As God has poured out on you, Philemon, here's what you've done. You've poured out to others. You've become a source of refreshing simply through your life and your faith and your love and your joy. What a statement that is. I wish that was more true of me. I wish it was true of this church. It's the Greek word, not to bore you with the Greek words. It's the Greek word, anapowo. What does that mean? Who cares, Paul? What, is, what does that mean? Anapowo is the word for refreshing. It means to allow someone else to stop from their labor in order to recover and collect their strength. Oh, that's the church. My job. As a fellow believer, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier is to create a situation where you can then recover and gain your strength because I'm giving you strength. And then when I'm struggling, you come along and give me strength. We pray for each other. We support each other. We give each other a hug. We say, how are you doing? And we actually listen for the answer. We don't rush. We, we love each other. We build each other up. So we can be spiritually refreshed. How often do we do that for other people? We're so busy, so preoccupied. I'm speaking to myself here. I thought this week of how often I frustrate people, how often I discourage people, how often I bring people down with a lack of joy and a lack of sacrifice and a lack of encouragement and a lack of strengthening them personally and spiritually and, and even a lack of love. And you say, well, Paul, you're being too hard on yourself. Or maybe you don't. I don't know. But, but the, the point is there are a thousand different ways that are all rooted in self-centeredness. They're all rooted in excuses of why I'm not going to be a source of infra, uh, inspiration and I'm not going to be a source of revitalization when you need it. I'm tired, busy, have so much going on. Talk to somebody else. Think of all the times we, we even subtly just kind of brush people off and say, I can't do it right now. And yet my job, according to verse 7, is to refresh the hearts of others. How differently would our relationships play out if we did that? You know, our phrase here at Harbor Rock is a place to be refreshed. And we use the concept of a harbor to denote a place where we come in and we restock and we get refreshed and revitalized and strengthened for the work. But here's the thing. We can't be a church where everyone is going to be spiritually and emotionally and relationally refreshed if we aren't living it ourselves. We can have all the taglines in the word and put it on t-shirts and hats and everything else. But, but if we're not doing that, somebody that comes in goes, all right, there's a place to be refreshed. Well, oh, boy, that wasn't refreshing at all. 
Oh, it's depressing. People were walking around like it was the end of the world. What should happen when people walk into this church? Joy, confidence, faith, love, conviction, encouragement, edification, peace. Think about what we should be. Now, are we? I think we're doing fairly well, but we can do better. A place to be refreshed. So how do we do this? I need to close because we're out of time. But a couple thoughts here real quick. Write these down. How do we examine whether we're giving people rest and strength and spiritual encouragement? Well, let's ask five very direct questions. Number one, am I maturing more in the Lord each day? Influencing people spiritually only comes out of the abundance in our own lives. You can only lead someone as far as you've gone. So if you and I aren't progressing spiritually ourselves, there can be little refreshing of others. It, it would be like you, you flying to Milan, Italy, or you flying to, to Zagreb, Croatia, a town I've been in, and, and not having a map, not having a phone, not having any resources, and then they bring a group of people to you and they say, lead them to all the right places. And you go, I, I, I can't. I can't. I, don't, I, I, I can't do that. What would we do? We'd kind of wander around aimlessly. Nobody speaks the language like, what, what do I do now? And, and we'd look for some insight. Listen, this is how a lot of Christians live. I'm supposed to be a source of refreshing. I'm supposed to teach people. I'm supposed to edify people and move them along spiritually. Well, well how can I do that if I'm not mature myself? How are we going to teach our kids? How are we going to train our kids in the way that they should go if we're not growing ourselves, let alone going out and evangelizing and making disciples? Am I maturing daily? Second, am I full of faith? Am I full of faith? Not just, I trust the Lord to save me, and Paul, I'm going to heaven. That's wonderful. But are you overflowing with confidence? Are you unhesitant to trust? Do you depend on the Lord for every single thing in your life. Because if your faith, if my faith is anemic and it's tentative, we're not going to lead anybody anywhere. So we need to ask the Lord, Lord, increase my faith. Renew my mind. Strip me of selfishness. Lord, Lord, lead me to good decisions that don't clog my faith, that don't lead me from holiness. And Lord, it's going to be hard, but I need you to help me step out of the boat more often. I need you to help me rely on you for everything. Only, only you, Lord. Am I full of faith? Number three, am I full of joy and contentment? We listed a little while ago all the things that God has done for us, and we just touched on it. So I asked this very carefully. How can any Christian justifiably be lacking in joy and contentment? Well, Paul, my circumstances. Well, Paul, my physiology. Well, Paul, this. Well, Paul, that. Listen, I get it. I've been there many times. Many, many, many times. There are trials and there are heartaches and there are challenges. But the secret is what Paul says in Philippians 4.11, which became my life first about 30 years ago. I have learned, I have learned to be content in all things. I've learned it. 
I've learned to rejoice when life's difficult. I've learned to trust when the obstacles are there and I can't see the final decision. I have learned to let my requests be made known to God with thanksgiving and to wait for that peace to fill my heart and my mind. Listen, there is no way we can refresh people if we are sad, discouraged, complaining, doubting, struggling, and feeling defeated. Who wants to be around that? I can't refresh anybody if I'm moping around and you see me before the service and I'm like, oh, oh life's so miserable, but I'm going to get up and preach the word. Doesn't work that way. Number four, am I constantly strengthening people spiritually or am I weakening them? You notice there's no middle ground on that. And that's really not a hard question to assess, but if you really don't know and you really want to know, Ask those around you for an honest answer. In fact, give them the latitude to write it down and make it anonymous. And then see what they have to say. When you're around me, friend, when you're around me, family member, am I strengthening you spiritually or am I weakening you? We have to look at that answer. Last one will be done. Am I intentionally seizing opportunities to influence people for Christ. Listen, there's no better way to refresh somebody than to lead them to know and receive God's love. So in our analysis, are we shying away from that or are we boldly going toward the opportunities? You know, one of the things many of you didn't see Wednesday night was that the youth, the high schoolers were outside and the whole Bible study was them talking about how to talk to somebody about Christ. And then they role-played. The reason they went till 9 o'clock is because they were so engaged in role-playing. How do you talk to somebody about the Lord? How do you deal with objections? And I want to tell you, students, and I wish the little kids were in here to hear this, set that tone early in your college life. Establish early on who you are, what your standards are, what your convictions are, what you will and won't do, and establish your love and your faith and your desire to influence others. But listen, that's not just for the college students. That's for you and me as adults because we are setting the example for them. So are we doing that? Do people know exactly where we stand? Do people know exactly what our convictions are? And we're not grumpy, we're not depressed, we're full of joy, we're full of contentment, we're full of faith, we're maturing in the Lord, we're encouraging people, strengthening people, helping people. Is that who we are? Because if so, we can be like Philemon and Aphia and Archippus. Next week, we'll look at how that then can be applied and exhibited in one of the most difficult ways. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.